Well, good morning. <laughs> this was sent to me by Clyde Curley, so I'll just apologize <laughs> right away. But it's a cute story. Knowing scripture can save your life. A woman had just returned to her home from an evening of church services when she was startled to see an intruder in her home. She caught the man in the act of robbing her home of its valuables, and she yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38! (laughs) Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. Well, the burglar stopped in his tracks. The woman calmly called the police and explained what, what she had done, and the officer came over, cuffed the man, and said to him, Why'd you just stand there? All the old lady did was yell a scripture at you. And he said, scripture? She said she had an ax in 238s. (laughs) Oh, well, believe it or not, that actually relates to what we're going to talk about in Mark chapter 14. So if you would, turn with me to Mark 14. We're about halfway through the Passion Week in Mark's account here in the Gospel of Mark. We've gone all through the ministry of Jesus. We've gone through the triumphal entry. The first couple of days were the opposition uh, from Jesus between Jesus and the um, religious leaders has come to a head. We saw last week as we walked through all of chapter 13 what's called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives, where he basically talked about the future of Israel. Because Israel rejected Christ, Christ said, fine, we're going to put the program for Israel on hold, and, and there will still be a future for Israel, but it's going to come after a time of great tribulation. And Mark chapter 13 described, for the most part, that great tribulation before the second coming of Jesus. And then the challenge at the end of Mark 13 to be on the alert and to be ready at any time for Jesus' coming. Well, Mark chapter 14, now we get to a new day in the week, and it's probably Wednesday. Let's, uh, let's read over this first couple of verses here as we make our way down through this wonderful passage and wonderful account. Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover... And unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Passover is the time that we are expecting. The the Passion Week led up to Passover and, uh, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You may remember a couple of months ago, when it was the season of Passover, March and April, we took a kind of a break from Mark and did a couple of, of uh, messages on Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the time where Israel re- looked back to the Exodus and how God had led them out of Egypt, delivered them from slavery. And so it was a, it was a perpetual time every year where they gave thanks to God. They ate the Passover lamb, which was slain. Um, basically to save the firstborn. The Passover lamb died as a substitute, which of course prefigures our Lord Jesus, as we'll see in the weeks to come. 
But Mark says that the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Now, you have to think from a Jewish perspective. If we said two days away from us today, if we said, okay, in two days, uh, such and such will happen, we would think Tuesday. But from a Jewish perspective, any part of a day is considered a day. So, like, if we said uh, two days from now, we would basically be saying tomorrow, because that would include today and tomorrow. That's two days. So two days, that, that's the way the Jewish mind thought. Interesting, when, you, when they did chronology of how long a king would reign, any part of a year was, was considered a year. So if a king reigned from, let's say, December all the way through the following year and then died of January on the, the next year, that would be considered three years that he reigned, even though it was barely over one. So it's the reckoning. It's the way that the, that the Jews reckon. So when it says that there were two days away, it basically means tomorrow. So, and because we know that the Passover began that year at uh, Thursday at sundown and went all the way through Friday at sundown, that was the Passover, um, that, this, uh, that this day that Mark is speaking of is Wednesday. So notice what the chief priests and the scribes had on their mind. Mark says that they were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. This will be important here in just a little bit. But notice, too, that they initially decide not to do this during the Passover because they feared the people. Remember back in, I think it was chapter 12, when they were locking horns with Jesus in the temple, they didn't want to do anything to him because they were afraid of the people. It said that over and over. They feared the people. They feared the people. So because of the people, they didn't want to arrest Jesus and kill him during the Passover because there's a bunch of people in town and they feared there would be a riot. And so they decided, well, we'll wait till after that. So starting now in verse 3, as we look at this, as we continue, we have an event that Matthew and Mark and John all record. Uh, some try to put the account in Luke that's in Luke chapter 7 with this, but it's not the same. It's some amazing uh, coincidences, but uh, it's the same type of event, the same person seems to have invited Christ to his house, the same name anyway, but there's enough differences, significant differences, that it's not the same. So if in your margin it says Luke chapter 7, just take a ballpoint pen and scratch it out because it's, this is not the account of the sinful woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet. This is a different woman entirely. Luke chapter 7 occurred up in Galilee far earlier. This occurs, as we're about to see, in Bethany, which is just beside Jerusalem. So let's look at this, Mark chapter 14, verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So they're at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we have an advantage that uh, several Gospels record this, uh, this story, this event. And we know that by reading John's Gospel that the event occurred six days before, before Passover. Now, we, that should raise a flag because Mark just says this is two days before Passover. John says it's six days before Passover. 
Well, what has happened is the event that we're about to read occurred six days before Passover. But here in Mark 14, where it says that, that two days before Passover, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to kill him. So basically what Mark is doing is saying, uh, a couple of days before Passover, the chief priests want, were looking for a way to kill Jesus. Now, let me back up and tell you an event that happened six days before Passover. Because this little flashback that Mark does is significant as we see, uh, as we see the passage unfolding here in, in a minute. So Mark is giving us basically a flashback, starting at verse 3, of several days earlier where Jesus is in Bethany. And as we read John's account of this, we're told not only is it six days before Passover, which would be Saturday, which would be the day before the triumphal entry, but we're also told that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead a little over a month prior to this event. So we, we have, have that context in your mind of Jesus was in Bethany. The last time he was in Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then he went up north to evade the, uh, the religious leaders for a while until he came back around to the Passover week. And interestingly, at this meal, uh, the Gospel of John says that Lazarus is also the reclining at the table here with Jesus, which is kind of neat. But this woman, John's account names her. Um, Mark doesn't, Matthew doesn't, but John does. John tells us that this is Mary of Bethany, Lazarus's sister, uh, Martha's sister. And we know from several different uh, accounts of various events that occurred in the Gospels that Mary is so significant. She didn't write any scripture, she didn't preach any messages. Uh, she wasn't one of the twelve. She never performed any miracles. And yet more scripture is devoted to Mary of Bethany than to ten of the twelve disciples. She was that significant in, in, in the Holy Spirit's mind, as it were, recording her life in the Gospels. And every time Mary appears on the page of scripture, she's at the feet of Jesus. You remember the first account, just think through what, you've, what you remember about the Gospels. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to Christ, and Martha, of course, is busy scurrying around the house, and she gets upset that Mary isn't helping her, and so she comes to Christ and says, tell Mary to help me. And Jesus basically says, Mary has chosen what is, what is good. Uh, Mary has chosen what is better. That's Luke chapter 10. Her devotion to Jesus is very clear in that passage. Uh, the, the other account we've already mentioned is the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus delays four days. They send to Jesus saying, Lazarus is sick. Jesus delays. Lazarus dies. When Jesus finally does show up, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And when Jesus shows up, initially Mary doesn't even go out to greet him. She is so grieved at what has happened, and probably not too uh, upset at, at Jesus that he's let it happen, because the first words out of her mouth when she finally does talk to Jesus is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Clearly disappointed that Jesus showed up late, which in our lives is a great lesson all unto itself. A lot of times Jesus shows up late, and yet he has a purpose that's bigger than simply saying yes to uh, Yes to us. 
She and that passage says that Jesus that Mary fell at Jesus' feet. So once again, she's at his feet. And now in this story, Mary shows up with this perfume and anoints Jesus' head. John says that she also anoints his feet. So once again, she's at his feet. And the fragrance, we're told in that passage, fills the house. So just in your mind's eye, allow, the, allow your, all your senses to engage. Imagine, have you ever smelled, I mean, we've all smelled bacon. Bacon somehow goes all throughout the house. Bacon can go through the walls. Have you ever noticed? You could smell bacon no matter where you are in a house that's cooking bacon. Um, that kind of makes me want some bacon, just thinking about it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, perfume can do the same thing. And uh, all of you ladies know, in fact, all of us men know as well, when perfume's overdone, it just doesn't do its job. It can fill up a room. In fact, there's some people, and there's some men, in fact, that have cologne that uh, after I leave them, I'll come home and, and Kathy will say, I almost said his name. Kathy says, you've been with so-and-so, haven't you? Said, yep, because you, I just reek of his aftershave. So he's not in this room. Don't try to figure out who it is. <laughs> this very costly perfume, we're told, fills the house. And how expensive was this perfume? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. First, the reaction. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. 300 denarii. That's what this is estimated at being valued. A, den a denarii is plural for a denarius. A denarius was basically a day's wage. So a day's wage, 300 days worth of money. Now, think of that. Now, I, I, I looked and found that the, uh, the minimum wage for today, uh, just as a very basic reference to today's dollars, Basically, 300 eight-hour days at a minimum wage today would be a little more than $17,000. $17,000 for 300 days. So when's the last time you bought a bottle of perfume? Um, I remember, I can't remember if it was this last Christmas or the Christmas before, I went to the mall and bought Kathy a thing of perfume. And it wasn't $17,000, but I remember when the lady told me, Here's what it cost. I said, really? That's for the small one, right? Perfume costs a lot, but $17,000. Has anybody ever spent that much on perfume? Well, I hope not. Yeah, Crock-Pot is a better option than $17,000 worth of perfume. Well, this particular perfume, we're told what it is. It is... It is a perfume that is of pure nard. Nard was a fragrant ointment that came from an East Indian plant, from a root in the Himalayan mountains. And it was specially imported in a very carefully sealed alabaster jar. And basically, once you broke it, it was open and, and you, you had to use it because this jar was made of alabaster. It was a very precious possession to Mary, obviously, because it was worth so much money. Who knows what it represented? Uh, there's some implication that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were of some means because they could 
host, Jesus and his disciples. We don't know how wealthy they were. Uh, Lazarus was buried in a rolling stone tomb, which typically was something that cost a bit of money to have. Remember, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man. Uh, It was sort of the the more wealthy way to to live, or or to be buried, was to be in in a rolling stone tomb. And so, who knows if this represented a lot for Mary, or if this was just something off the shelf. But $17,000, I think by anybody's uh, value, was pretty precious. And Mary comes, breaks this vial, which represented a very significant personal possession of Mary, and we're told that she pours it on his head, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance. And the response of those who who see this, Mark says some were indignant. We're not told who it was. Um, Matthew says it was the disciples. John says it was Judas. So we've got broad and it gets narrow and then it gets even narrower, like Judas was the spokesman or the main person, but definitely the, uh, the, the primary one who was frustrated because uh, the money could have, they could have sold this for you know, 300 days wages and the money given to the poor. It's interesting, John goes on to say Judas didn't care about the poor. The, Judas was in charge of the money, and so he wanted the money in the bag because he often pil- pilfered what was in the bag. So Judas didn't care about the poor. He was just interested in getting his hands in some of this, some of this money that was wasted. Notice that word. This was wasted. Um, by the way, have you ever been in a ministry or a business where the funds are mismanaged? Where the CFO or the CEO or the pastor or the treasurer or whoever is responsible mismanages the money for personal use. Interesting, Jesus knew that Judas was doing this. How could he have not known? And yet Jesus allowed it. Does the same thing today, doesn't he? Jesus knows when money is being mismanaged, and somehow in his grand sovereign plan, he will occasionally allow that. He's got a higher plan. I don't, I don't understand it, but that's the, way, that's the way it is sometimes. That's the way it was with even Jesus' own disciples. Judas stuck his hand in the purse, um, and here we're told through, through looking at all the Gospels together that Judas was the primary one who spoke up and said, hey, this was a waste. But notice Jesus' words in verse 6, his response. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. These verses are loaded with applications, and I see at least four here in these verses that we've looked at so far. And there's another one in the verses we haven't read just yet, at least four. And the first one we'll borrow from Dr. Toussaint. Kathy and I remember this week uh, Principal Dr. Toussaint shared that fits right with this verse. And here's the, here's the lesson. Who you are determines what you see. Who you are determines what you see. Jesus said, she's done a good deed to me. The disciples said, it's a waste. Who you are determines what you see. Remember the opening joke, the woman who shared scripture to the guy? 
the burglar? The burglar didn't hear, didn't think Acts 2.38. He thought an Acts in 2.38s. Why? Because he's a burglar. Who you are determines what you see. I remember on a trip to Israel, we were in a bus, and the guy behind us said, man, I see beehives everywhere. He was a beekeeper. (laughs) I'd never seen one in all the trips that we've been there. But he was a beekeeper, so he saw it. Uh, I'm a woodworker, and so whenever we go anywhere I'm, and see furniture, you know, I'll, I'll start doing this, and I'll look at how the thing's put together. In fact, I've noticed how this is put together. I see it every week. It's a huge distraction every time I'm standing here. <laughs> you know, I just want to feel all the joints and have they been sanded well and everything. It's pretty good. But who you are determines what you see. Uh, Kathy and, and my daughter, Katie, our younger daughter, loves shoes. She says, that's the first thing I notice about people. Hi, how you doing? She look, <laughs> looks at their shoes. So if you ever meet Katie, you might want yeah, to check out your shoes. Who you are determines what you see. It was true, it's true today, and it was true in that time. Uh, and it's also what you'll focus on. You know, I've, I've given you a couple of examples that are, that are sort of humorous, but the fact is, that's a pretty convicting principle, because we see a lot more like the disciples, don't we? We see somebody doing something, and immediately we'll say, here's why that's wrong. Why this waste? And Jesus said, she's done a good thing. Boy, talk about two different perspectives. Jesus says it's good. The disciples say it's wrong. In fact, they go so far as to chastise her for doing it. Who you are determines what you see. What should you see? Let me read to you. Just listen to Philippians 4.8. What should you see? Paul wrote, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What are you to think about? What are you to look for in life and in lives? Dwell on these things, Paul wrote. Honorable, right, pure, lovely, good reputation. If there is anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If we want to see positive qualities in people or in situations, then typically you're going to see what you're looking at. That sounds so simple because it's true, but the reality is you will see what you're looking at. And the application's wonderful. Start looking for what you want to see. Catch your kids or your grandkids doing something right This is one of the best lessons that Kathy and I got early on as parents. Uh, Affirm the desired behavior is what we were taught. We would try to catch our girls doing something right, not always just something wrong, and we would affirm what they're doing right. It's the same true, not only true with uh, kids, but also with, uh, with friends, with your spouse, with your pastor, um, with everyone. Start looking for what you want to see. You want to see what's something worthy of praise? Start looking for it. 
You want to affirm the behavior you desire. Determine to focus on the honorable qualities that you find. Look for things that are excellent and comment on those. There are positives we are missing by dwelling on the negatives. Jesus says she's done a good thing. The disciples and Judas said, what a waste. Why? Because who you are determines what you see. Here's the second principle from these verses. Jesus will commend your personal sacrifice for him. Jesus will commend your personal sacrifice for him. And often it is is personal. Mary brought her a jar of, of, uh, of nard. It was a significant financial contribution that she devoted, and it was a sacrifice. This wasn't something that she just, you know, had 18 of them on the shelf and pulled one off. It was a sacrifice. And all of us have different ways that we sacrifice for the Lord, don't we? And they're all personal. Jesus will commend you for that. Maybe you've not heard that from him yet. Maybe that's not been affirmed by a friend or by somebody else. Um, But one day you're going to hear it. Keep your finger here in Mark and turn for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to show you that this is a fact. You've got something to look forward to. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Verse 4 and 5. Paul says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Each man, each person, every Christian, you will get praise from God. This is speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, which is actually the next event that happens after the rapture. And the rapture could happen in the next five minutes, next five seconds. And the judgment seat of Christ is the next thing. The judgment seat of Christ is where we are judged by Christ, not for heaven and hell, that, that was taken care of on the cross when we believed in Jesus. This is a judgment for rewards. And notice it says, each man's praise will come. Every believer has borne some kind of fruit in their life, maybe a lot, maybe a little, but whatever it is, you will receive a commendation from Jesus Christ for what you've done. So back, back to Mark. And the principle, Jesus will commend your personal sacrifice for him. Don't feel like he hasn't seen it. He has. And he will commend you for it. And won't that be great? That Jesus will be able to commend us for things possibly that we've even forgotten about. I remember one time I had somebody come up to me and thank me for something. And and I said, well, you know, you're welcome. And then I was thinking, did I do that? I didn't even remember it. Well, that's great. I wonder how many times that's happened in life. (laughs) Probably not enough. Every Christian will be rewarded. Jesus will commend your personal sacrifice. Here's the third principle. Just as true 
It's the flip side. Others may criticize your personal sacrifice for God. Now this, we're more used to, aren't we? We have to work hard at not becoming cynics by this principle, uh, knowing that others may criticize your personal sacrifice for God. But criticism is part of reality. The world, we know, criticizes us. All you've got to do is read the news. But they're the world. Of course they're going to do that. The hard part and the most painful part is when the criticism comes from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is where the real dagger enters the heart. Because those that you want to support you, those that want to affirm what you're doing in ministry, are often the very ones who criticize the worst and the most painful way. People will often see your sacrifice as a waste. Why? Because it's valuable. They'll recognize the value of it. The disciples had no problem. As soon as Mary poured the, the spikenard, out came the calculators. That's 300 days worth of work that was just wasted there. The value of it is obvious. What isn't so obvious to people is that it's a good thing. And so you'll hear criticism because different people have different priorities. But you know, the application cuts both ways here. Not only should we allow unjust criticism to roll off our backs, but we need to give others a break. When they're serving the Lord the best they know how, um, it could be very well that we're like the disciples looking at, at Mary of Bethany, and we're saying, what you're doing is a waste. That's a waste of money. You shouldn't be doing that. When in reality, Jesus is going, they've done a good thing to me. Don't, don't, rebuke, don't rebuke them. It's very possible that Jesus is leading others differently than, they're leading, than he's leading us. That's between them and God. Notice, too, how Jesus responded. He said, you always have the poor with you. See that? You always have the poor with you, verse 7. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them but you do not always have me. Look how many times in simply verse 7 he says the word you. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. Five times in one verse. Jesus is basically, I take it, saying, you know, that's great that you care about the poor. You do it. If that's your passion, go for it. Notice he didn't say, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me. She always has the poor. Whenever she wants, she can do good to them. He's saying, if you've got a passion for the poor, the poor are always there. You can do good whenever you want to. But leave her alone because she has done a good thing for me. Plus, he says, you, you always have them. The, the, the opportunity to minister to the poor is always there. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but what it means is that's not our default every time we look at somebody who is extravagant in their giving to God. And we've all, I think, been guilty of this, saying, why would we spend XYZ on this for the church when we could be doing XYZ? You know, now, now all of a sudden it comes home, doesn't it? It really does. 
Jesus says you always have the poor. And if you've got a concern for the poor, that's, that's wonderful. But you don't always have me. Mary is recognizing a brief window of time that all, won't always be there. And she is ministering to Christ. There's a fourth lesson. And this is a tough one, as if the others haven't been hard. Here's the fourth lesson. Resist the urge to evaluate the value of everything on financial terms. Resist the urge to evaluate the value of everything on financial terms. You see, when Mary broke the vial and poured the perfume, the first thing that the disciples, the first thing that Judas thought is money. The value of what she did it boils down to basically money. Jesus saw a value that went far beyond that. Not everything in life is put on the scales to determine its financial value. Um, if you've ever been a breadwinner, you know this tension, especially if you've been like self-employed and you realize the value of your time. Time is money when you're self-employed. And when you're not working, you're not earning. When you're on vacation, I mean, it's a double negative, isn't it? Not only are you spending money, but you're not earning money. And it's so tempting when that's your day in and day out way of thinking to begin to evaluate that as life in general. Not everything needs to be evaluated on, its finan on financial terms. Listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18, Peter says this, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter's basically saying, you want to talk money? Let's, let's talk money for a second. You were bought. You were redeemed. But not with money. Not with perishable things like silver or gold. You were bought with something far more valuable, the blood of Jesus Christ. And I read that passage to underscore what Jesus is underscoring here in Mark 14. That we've got to resist the urge to evaluate the value of everything based on money. We weren't bought, our salvation wasn't bought with money, it was bought with something far greater. Life. Jesus' life. Your, your giving to God and your donating to the Lord, your, your passion for life, is not just money. It's, it's, it's who you are. By the way, God allows what may seem like waste a lot of times to us. God permits waste, what seems like waste, to us. And to Him it may not be. Um, I've, we've all been touched by those whose lives have been cut short by an untimely death. One of the greatest examples I think about that seems like a waste. Have, has that ever come to your mind when someone dies in their prime? You think, boy, what a waste. Somebody who had such great potential. Someone maybe who was serving the Lord or had like just graduated or had gotten all the way up to this point and then all of a sudden, tragedy. And our response is, God, why? Why would you bring someone to this point and then just, what a waste. 
Whenever I am tempted to think like that, I think of one of the disciples, James. He wasn't just, you know, Thaddeus, a guy you hardly ever read about, or, uh, you know, Simon the Lesser, all, all these other guys. What are the disciples' names, by the way? Do you know, other than Peter, James, and John? Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, all throughout the Gospels, whenever something significant is going to happen, Jesus cuts out Peter, James, and John and says, come on. Peter, James, and John. The new church in the, in the, in the book of Acts barely gets started, and James is killed. All this preparation, pouring into James, all the teaching that he heard, making James one of the three that, J that Jesus always pulls aside and pours into. And James is killed. What a waste. It's so tempting to look at, at life cut short like that, or anything that seems to be a waste, when we think about life as simply this life. I don't want to get too far off the beaten path here, but remember in the book of Acts when uh, Judas, after Judas died, they replaced him with Matthias. Why did they replace him? Because Judas's resurrection wasn't going to be that great. But they didn't replace James when he died. Why? Because when James is resurrected, he's going to take up right where he left off. There's a future for James. We have to think about life not just as up to this point and we die, and then, gosh, what a waste. Mm -mm. God doesn't see it like that. God looks at this life, and then let's go ahead and tack on a thousand years in the millennium. Oh, and then there's eternity. Our lives are not just this life. And when we think about life as being wasted, we've got to grow bigger beyond um, beyond that perspective. James's life wasn't a waste because he will be resurrected. And whoever it is in your life that maybe you're thinking, God, why? You've got to think beyond this life because God does. God factors in resurrection. And uh, we had a living example of that with Lazarus. And I wonder if Mary maybe caught a, a, a glimpse of that because not only did she, was she doing this in, uh, in, in a response of gratitude for raising Lazarus, but also in preparation for Jesus' death and then ultimately resurrection. So let's keep reading. Um, Jesus isn't done with his defense of Mary. Verse 8, Jesus continues and says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. What a great, great testimony for Mary of Bethany. I don't think Mary knew it um, fully, but what she did here as an opportunity was an opportunity for God's sovereignty. That is, for Jesus to be able to say, this act of love, devotion, is not merely going to be a blessing that I'm going to bless right here and now, but also she's anointed my body for burial. So it looks forward to an even bigger service. In fact, in other gospel, she is told to keep it for burial. 
So she poured some on his head, some on his feet, and some she kept for the anointing of his body. Now, we can't say that Martha is the only servant in this family. She's the one that usually is credited as being a servant. And yet here's Mary of Bethany pouring out this valuable, uh, basically showing her devotion and service to Christ. And we have this phrase that is unique to Mark. Jesus says, she has done what she could. And it's significant that it's unique to Mark because Mark is the gospel that emphasizes Jesus as the servant and as the example of, of being a servant to us that we should take. She has done what she could. Mary of Bethany couldn't do uh, a whole lot for Jesus, but she did what she could, and Jesus commended her. We can do what we can. You may, you may think, you know, I don't have a whole lot to contribute to, um, to ministry, to the church, to the Christian life, to encourage someone else. I'm just, I don't have exceptional gifts. I don't have dot, dot, dot. The list goes on. You've got them and I've got them. All the reasons why we can't be what we think we should be in God's grand plan. Mary of Bethany probably could have said the same thing. And yet Jesus said she did what she could. And she was commended. If you do what you can, if I do what I can, we will be commended as well. Jesus also said that what she's done will be held in memory of her. And it is. It's in three of the Gospels. The fragrance of her uh, perfume not only filled that house, it has filled the whole world. And it fills this room this morning as we think about and mull over the wonderful sacrifice that Mary did and the example that she is to us. Fanny Crosby, we know her as the wonderful hymn writer, uh, blind, and yet she did what she could. And did she? She wrote like 8,000 gospel songs in her lifetime. And it's interesting, on her tombstone in Bridgeport, Connecticut, are engraved those words, she has done what she could. Well, the flashback is over now, so come back now into the present of the Passion Week, back on Wednesday, and look at verse 10. And you see the reason now for the flashback. Mark 14.10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Opportune time there simply meaning when there was no crowd. Because remember, that's what the, that's what the religious leaders were trying to avoid. We don't, want to, we don't want this to happen during the, the Passover because of the crowd. Well, Judas is now basically providing an opportune time where the crowd doesn't have to be around. And we know that as we, as we read on. But notice also this detail that sort of pulls this together. Notice this text here, these verses say, Judas was, quote, seeking how to betray him. And then look back up in verse 1 where it says the religious leaders were, quote, seeking how to seize him. One is seeking how to seize him. Judas is seeking how to betray him. And Mark ties this together. Here's, here's the problem. Here's the solution. And right in the middle of this, of this tension, you have this beautiful story of Mary of Bethany, this flashback that is intended to contrast uh, Judas and the religious leaders and the gracious sacrifice and love of Mary of Bethany.
The lessons that we've gleaned from this, I hope, will be some that will encourage you because Mary of Bethany is here to do that. Who you are determines what you see. It's also true that Jesus will commend your personal sacrifice for him. Others may criticize your personal sacrifice for God, and let's resist the urge to evaluate the value of everything based on financial terms. What a great woman, Mary of Bethany. What a great model of a disciple of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we pause and look in on this tender scene, as we're in the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table in observation, we marvel at the love of Mary, who came in, broke this costly perfume, and from the perspective of some, wasted it. But we know it wasn't a waste. It was a demonstration and even a preparation of something greater. Father, as we make our way through the week today, um, just give us the mindset that allows us to do what we can, just as Mary did, and know that the commendation of Jesus Christ is coming in spite of the criticism that we may hear from others. Let us just do what we can for you and be not only satisfied with that, but joyful, knowing, knowing that you have created us for that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.